July 9th, 1916. The Great War was raging in Europe. The ferocious new tools of modern warfare, tanks, machine guns, airplanes, had turned much of the continent into a killing field. But on that summer's day, American readers of the New York Times were able to put aside all that grim news from the front to read an entirely different kind of dispatch from the paper's European correspondent. That day's big story? The war had unleashed a new fashion trend. People were starting to wear watches on their wrists. Until recently, the reporter noted, the bracelet watch had been looked upon by most Americans as something of a joke. He referred to watches, and I'm quoting here, as a silly-ass fad. But now a war was suddenly turning a silly-ass fad into a necessity. Thanks to improvements in communications technology, modern armies could now coordinate their movements more precisely. And that meant soldiers, or at least their commanders, needed to be constantly aware of the time. And that was hard to do if you were always having to fish your watch out of your pocket. Putting that watch on a strap and tying it around your wrist was a logical solution to the problem. But that Times article in the summer of 1916 was not just about what soldiers were doing. The breaking news was that civilians, men as well as women, were now starting to put watches on their wrists. And even the critics who had spent years mocking the bracelet watch now conceded that it was probably appropriate technology for what the reporter called general outdoor life. The question still to be answered was, would it also be widely adopted for general indoor living after the war ended? I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. What time is it? Winds automatically with just the slightest motion of your wrist. Its performance and beauty a source of pride. Springs and gears, pinions and bearings. Still ticking away. Far more steadily than any beating heart. The man usually credited as the father of the modern clock was a locksmith from Nuremberg, Germany, named Peter Henlin, who in 1510 built the first spring-powered brass clock. But whether a watch is electronic and sells for a few dollars, or a mechanical masterpiece that sells for thousands or even millions, they're all in their own way marvels of engineering, innovation, and precision. So before moving on, let's take a quick look inside the modern watch to see what makes it tick. Our guide is Carlene Stevens, a curator at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. The heart of a mechanical watch is the thing that makes it keep accurate time. And for hundreds of years, that has been an oscillating balance and hairspring. The balance is a circle, and the hairspring is a, a spiral. 
And together, they rotate at a regular rate, and it looks like it's breathing. For roughly 500 years, the mechanical watch reigned supreme. But in the 1960s, its dominance was challenged by battery-operated electronic watches. The first blow to the dominance of the mechanical watch actually came from a very old piece of technology, the tuning fork. My hero in this story is Max Hetzel. He was hired in the 1950s to automate watchmaking for a new plant in Biel, Switzerland. The research question was, can an electric watch ever be more precise than a mechanical watch? And Hetzel's answer was no. As long as a watch has a balance and a hairspring, there's no way to improve the timekeeping regularity. Then the second question was, if the electric watch run by a battery can't be more accurate, what would make a watch more accurate? And that's where he came up with a very small mechanical metal tuning fork. And, and that eventually became the Bulova Accutron. As impressive as the Bulova Accutron was, its reign as a piece of cutting-edge technology was short-lived. Tuning forks would ultimately not be able to compete against the many advantages provided by quartz. In the 1920s, researchers at Bell Labs had developed a clock that kept time using a quartz crystal that vibrated when subjected to an electric current. The competition to produce the first quartz watch was intense between several Japanese, Swiss, and American companies. The winner was the Japanese firm, Seiko. 1969 is, is when Seiko issues the shot heard around the world. That is when the world's very first quartz wristwatch arrives. Joe Thompson is a journalist who's been writing about watches since the 1970s. He's currently editor-at-large at Hodenki.com, an online magazine about the watch industry. Joe Thompson says that the shot heard around the world in 1969 was particularly devastating to the Swiss watch industry. The quartz crisis wreaked havoc on the Swiss watch industry. Perhaps the best measure of it is that in 1970, the Swiss watch industry employed 89,000 people. It bottomed out in 1988 at 28,000. And so like all revolutions, this one was uh, messy and bloody and there were casualties. And the primary casualties were in Switzerland where brands just couldn't compete. Uh, they stuck with the mechanical technology and, and they went bankrupt. The quartz revolution of the 1970s made the Japanese watch industry world leaders and devastated many of the iconic Swiss companies, at least for a time. For a brief shining moment, it appeared to also revive an American watch industry that had been moribund since the end of World War II. By the 1960s, watches had become too expensive to make in the U.S. But the Hamilton Watch Company, those people who had introduced the world to the first electronic watch, 
was still in business and still making watches in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, although it was struggling to stay afloat. Like everyone else in the late 1960s, they were trying to gain a foothold into the rapidly growing quartz market. But they were years behind their competition. The only way to catch up would be to come up with something that no one else was doing. The people at Hamilton decided they would tell the time digitally. All numbers, no hands. I felt we were too far behind in the analog business. And unless we went digital, price wouldn't matter. And it turned out I was lucky and guessed right. That's John Berge. In 1968, he was 34 years old and the head of research and development at the Hamilton Watch Company. He headed the team that produced the Pulsar, the world's first digital watch. In 1970, they built three prototypes and dangled them in front of the media. Everyone was eager to get a glimpse of the watch of the future, including the legendary host of NBC's The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson. We got a call from NBC, I guess it was, and uh, and I went up, met with Carson and the show, gave Carson one of the prototypes. His assistant was Ed McMahon at the time. Ed McMahon held it, and Johnny Carson looked at it. Of course, they put down the lights, so it was dark enough to see the digital displays in the studio. The first thing uh, Carson says, hey, Ed, it's upside down. (laughs) You can can see the numbers, you know. And uh, so he turns it around and uh, pushed it a couple times, and it it worked, and he says, boy, that's that's really great. That's the neatest thing I've ever seen. And Johnny Carson took the watch, and he said, well, guess that'll put Mickey Mouse out of business. The Pulsar finally went on sale in April 1972, two years after it was first introduced on The Tonight Show. Its official name was the Pulsar Time Computer, although it really wasn't a computer. Telling time was the only thing it could actually do. 400 watches were offered up for the launch, and even with its $2,000 selling price, they sold out in three days. It was an exciting time, a lot of fun, and enjoyed every moment of it. We created a lot of history. A lot of famous people came around and called up for the Pulsar when it first started. What I remember was from from, uh, Betty Ford, who was... uh, President Ford's wife. She said, how much are they? I'd like to have one for my husband. And I said, it was around, I remember it was around $1,200. She said, $1,200? Forget it. I said, no, no, I won't forget it. I'll send you one free. It's for the president. She said, oh my God, thanks. And anyway, we got a letter sometime thereafter thanking us very much for that wonderful watch. And I. Wore, wore, wore quite a bit, I understand. So <laughs> it was a, a lot of fun, the whole thing. Unfortunately for John Berge and the Hamilton Watch Company, the Pulsar turned out to be a shooting star that burned up very quickly. 
In 1972, it cost $300 to make the components for a Pulsar watch. Less than a decade later, it cost $3. Cheap digital quartz watches flooded the market, and by the end of the 1970s, the Hamilton Watch Company was forced to declare bankruptcy. The American experiment with LED digital had failed, and the Swiss were still focused primarily on mechanical watches. But watchmaking was too integral a part of the Swiss economy and culture to surrender without a fight. All mechanical production for Swiss watches was consolidated into one company led by a man named Ernest Tomke. One of the people Tomke hired was a young, innovative engineer, Elmer Mock. And Mock was interested in making a, an inexpensive quartz watch. And what he does, amazingly, is he ends up ordering an injection molding machine, which cost 500,000 Swiss francs. Well, soon enough, Tomke ends up calling him in, asking him, what the heck is he doing? And berates him for about a half an hour, and then finally asks him, well, what, what were you thinking? And then Mock explains to him, I think we can make a plastic watch that would be really inexpensive. Turns out that Ernst Tomke was also thinking that an inexpensive plastic quartz watch could be just what the Swiss watch industry needed to beat back the Japanese. Within a few months, they had come up with a prototype and a name for their new watch. It was called Swatch. They launched Swatch in 1983, and Swatch becomes an enormous hit. But what really caused the revolution was that Swatch quickly redefined what a watch could be. It turned the watch dial into a painter's palette, and it became um, a, a celebration of artistic expression, and it became almost an attitude and philosophy of life. It was the first watch to start what we now know as watch wardrobe. It was cheap enough that you could buy one, two, three for different outfits, for different occasions. It became a sensation. By turning watches into fashion accessories, Swatch revolutionized the watch industry, not just in Switzerland, but around the world. It was a great time to be in the watch business with one possible exception. Companies whose main source of revenue still came from making expensive mechanical watches. They were feeling a bit nervous. Well, yeah, of course we thought it could pose a threat. That was uh, fairly obvious to us at that time. But the reality is that the whole premise of what we do is that we want watches to last. That's Hank Edelman. He's the chairman of the board of the Henri Stern Watch Agency, which imports and distributes Patek Philippe watches in the United States. Patek Philippe has been making very high-end mechanical watches in Switzerland since 1851. He remembers the years after Swatch revolutionized the industry as being particularly challenging. The ex expectation was that our kind of watch would disappear that the, the idea of mechanical watchmaking, handwork, would no longer be needed. And the presumption was that there was just a matter of time until wa watch companies like ours disappeared. Clearly, <laughs> that wasn't the case. Today, against all odds, and thanks to some very clever marketing, 
the mechanical watch business is thriving. In 2016, mechanicals accounted for 27% of all Swiss watch exports. And at $15 billion, they represented 80% of total sales. But now there's a new threat on the horizon, one that will likely not significantly impact the mechanical watch industry, but which, for the first time in 30 years, threatens the reign of electronic watches. It's actually a double-barreled threat. The first is a smartphone. Millions, maybe even billions of people, no longer feel the need to wear time around their wrists. Time may be heading back into the pocket from which it emerged a hundred years ago. The second potentially disruptive innovation is a smartwatch, a touchscreen computer that users can wear on their wrists. The smartwatch burst into prominence in September 2014 when, with much fanfare, Apple introduced the world to the Apple Watch. But the idea behind the smartwatch goes back a long way. You'll recall that when the Pulsar watch was introduced in 1972, its official name was the Pulsar Time Computer. But that proved to be more hype than reality. Apart from being the first digital watch, there wasn't really anything computer-like about the Pulsar. So let's go back even further, all the way back to January 1946. That's when the readers of the Dick Tracy comic strip were first introduced to his remarkable two-way wrist radio. It was a futuristic gadget that featured both a standard analog watch face and a walkie-talkie that Tracy could use when the bad guys had him in a jam. In 1964, the strip's writers upgraded the wrist radio into a two-way wrist TV, introducing the world to video conferencing for the first time. And arguably, one of the biggest fans of the Dick Tracy watch was a serial inventor in Toronto named Steve Mann. So my name's Steve Mann, and I've been inventing, designing, and building wearable computers for about 43 years now. And one example of the wearable computer is the smartwatch that I built, uh, invented and built uh, 20 years ago, back in 1998. Steve Mann is a professor at the University of Toronto. 20 years ago, while exploring ways to consolidate a variety of digital applications into a single wearable device, he came up with the idea of putting it on a watch. You see, back then, people had tape recorders to record sound. They had cameras to take pictures. They had telephones, calculators. You know, we had all these different things that were separate, and I kind of envisioned that they would all be coming together in one general-purpose device that's kind of like a general-purpose computer that you wear on your body. And I looked at different forms of it. Back in those days... Almost everybody already wore a wristwatch. People would typically wear a wristwatch so they knew what time it was. And so what I figured is, is that one of the things we already wear could be that one thing. Uh, so I simply envisioned this idea of making a computer be a wristwatch. Step one was to develop a prototype of the wrist computer. One day, while in Germany for a conference, Steve Mann stumbled across some oversized kids' watches in a store. The watches also had a compartment 
for storing gumballs. That gave them an idea. They had a regular watch in them, and then there was some room for some gum in there. And so what I did is I thought, oh, those are pretty good. I could probably build a computer into that. So I bought a whole bunch of them and built general-purpose computers into them. So Steve Mann built his general-purpose computer inside the watch. Among its functions was video conferencing, just like Dick Tracy. By 2000, he was ready to introduce it to the world. He went to the International Solid State Circuits Conference to participate in a session that examined the question, when might the Dick Tracy watch go from the realm of science fiction to reality? Much to the amazement of the people at the conference, Steve Mann showed them that the day had already arrived. I downloaded my uh, video conferencing app and ran that, and everybody was kind of blown away by it, and they thought, wow, this is really amazing. And, and so uh, a number of these people who were running this conference uh, you know, said, wow, this is a new field of research. You know, Steve Mann is the father of wearable computing, is what they said. They said they recognized this as a new discipline. It would be another 15 years before the Apple Watch hit the market, but by that point, to Steve Mann, smartwatches had become old news. Mann is now convinced that eyeglasses, not watches, are best suited to house a multifunction wearable computer. And so he has shifted his research in that direction. It's estimated that about 18 million Apple Watches were sold in 2017. That's an impressive number, but when you put 18 million in the context of the billion watches that are produced every year around the world, it starts to feel niche. Prices are starting to drop as more players enter the smartwatch market and more features are being added all the time. Fitness apps are driving a lot of smartwatch sales these days. But it remains an open question whether smartwatches will revolutionize the watch industry the way that Quartz did in the 1980s, or will remain the specialized product they are today. The one thing you can count on, according to Carlene Stevens of the National Museum of American History, is that in the watch business, you can't ever really count on anything. I think the most important lesson we can learn from the history of the watch is that change is inevitable and the future is not foretold. Uh, There was a moment recently where it appeared that cell phones were going to kill the wristwatch. But I think recent events with the Apple Watch, the Fitbit, all of these wrist-worn, multifunction, personal timekeepers shows we shouldn't count the wristwatch out yet. In other words, there's still a lot of life left in this silly-ass fad. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. On the next episode, we'll look at the world of car racing, from its humble beginnings in the early 20th century to today's high-tech computers on wheels. And if you want to find out more about any of the guests we've talked to on today's show, 
you can head to our website at delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. That's delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Thanks for listening.